This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Let's set the Business Week agenda first off, Carol. Gina Martin-Adams is with us on the phone from New Jersey. She, of course, is Chief Equity Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. And there with you in Manhattan, Dave Wilson, Stocks Editor, author of the Stock and the Chart of the Day. Dave, quickly set the tone for us in this uh, uptrade today. Well, it's been a bit of back and forth. There's definitely a move higher at this point. And, you know, one group that really jumps out for me is utility stocks because we've heard all these comparisons to 2008, 2009, you know, the last bear market, given the extent of the drop we've seen in stocks more broadly. The S&P 500 Utilities Index is headed for its biggest gain since October 2008, right smack in the middle of uh, the previous bear market. And what's interesting, if you look at the index, you actually saw that its dividend yield, because these are the kind of shares you buy for their payouts, got close to 4% as stocks tumbled yesterday. And that's the highest dividend yield on this group in four years. So it's clear that people are stepping in, willing to go with a relatively defensive area of the market. And that's true more broadly as well. I mean, you're seeing you know, the kind of defensive groups, the ones that tend to do well no matter how the economy is doing, sort of leading the way here. But then you, you look at you know, these stocks, Dominion Energy, you know, utility in Virginia up 17%. CMS Energy up almost 17%. Southern Company. Big across the South, up almost 16%. I mean, the biggest gains in the S&P 500 are dominated by these utilities. And you just don't see these moves like ever, except in times of stress. All right. So Gina Martin-Adams, come on in on the trade today and what you're seeing and, and what you think is either promising or worrisome. Um, so I'm kind of with Dave on this one. You don't usually see utilities lead a sustained rally in the equity market. As a matter of fact, utilities leadership is usually a signal of weakness, not a signal of strength, mm. particularly with bond yields as low as they are and valuations for this group relative to the index as high as they are. Valuation multiples for utilities are at their cycle peak already relative to the S&P 500 and have only gotten more expensive in relative terms over the course of the last month or two. So I would say that it's a little bit of a sign of weakness. That said, the fact that you do have broader participation and you have groups including technology, healthcare, financials, consumer staples, basically every group in the S&P 500 except energy is up, is somewhat encouraging. I think usually at real bottoms you see rotation into laggards, and we really haven't seen that yet. That said, I do think this is a process, right? Bottoms are typically a process. We had very clear capitulation days last Thursday as well as yesterday, uh, setting the stage for potentially still a volatile market, but maybe more of a bottoming process to start to emerge over the next couple of weeks. Um, It remains to be seen whether we actually get that real skyrocketing sort of V-bottom, which would require rotation, or more of a choppy bottoming process, which is our view. And so, Gina, is volatility just something we're going to have to live with for the the near term until we see a real clear picture of this virus playing out medically? 
I think so. I, I don't know that we're necessarily going to have to see volatility at yesterday's levels. I mean, yeah. yesterday the VIX index reached obviously a new a new high, even higher than at any point during the 2008-2009 crisis. So it seems that that was probably our peak volatility point. But if you look at how traders are positioning, the spread between the two-month and three-month volatility contract is also at a record level, suggesting that traders are positioned for volatility to remain very, very high. Uh, I, I do think that just the information vacuum that we're in right now creates a lot of frayed nerves, a lot of concern on the part of investors with respect to where we're headed, what the real value of shares is in an environment where you can't predict earnings is tough. You know, that said, when you have massive volatility spikes like we had yesterday, most of the time the result is pretty positive for investors willing to take on risk in those kinds of uncertain periods over the course of 12 months. And I think that's why we're likely to see pretty choppy price action as investors continually realize the fact that when everyone else is so fearful, you should probably be right. starting to get a little greedy. All right. We're going to leave it there. Gina Martin-Adams, thank you so much, Chief Equity Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. And, of course, Dave Wilson, Stock Editor, will be back with us later on with his chart and stock of the day. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio. Speaking about trying to get their heads around the situation and certainly being very, very busy is the medical community. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo saying earlier today that New York State will be in desperate need of hospital beds and ventilators soon and may need more than 12 times the existing intensive care capacity. Let's talk about the medical community and how they're dealing with the virus. Dr. Ian Lusbader is back with us, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center on the phone in New York. Dr. Lusbader, great to have you back with us. Um, how are you guys coping with this? Uh, thanks for having me, Carol and Jason. Um, you know, uh, everyone is coping. Uh, it's sort of amazing. I just came back from the hospital doing um, urgent cases. All elective cases are canceled. People are being rescheduled really to conserve uh, equipment. And streets are deserted. You know, there's definitely people calling uh, in a panic. And so I think it's important to understand that the individual risk at this point is not very high of, of death, certainly. There are probably a number of uh, patients, people who, are, who are, have an asymptomatic infection. But in terms of the medical community, really the rationale is to um, be careful with equipment. You certainly don't want, out of, uh, want to run out of food in the middle of an ocean voyage. And all uh, interactions are really done with what are called PPEs or personal protective equipment. So right. it, all the masks are disposable, the N95 masks, uh, the gowns, the gloves. You know, every it's very um, intensive whenever you interact with a patient. And so the concern is really sort of conserving those uh, if there's really a surge in the need. And that's and, sort of the rationale for, for canceling uh, elective uh, surgeries and so forth. Right. So, Ian, you know, we've talked with you uh, extensively over a long period of time, but more recently about this virus being on the front lines. How worried are you about the system, individual hospitals, especially in heavily populated areas like New York City, essentially getting overwhelmed? 
Exactly. Well, at this point, fortunately, everything is is going smoothly. We've just started testing. So, uh, for example, down at NYU, uh, it's about 100 patients a day being tested. Um, No results back. Uh, That takes certainly a a few days. And I think there is uh, a bit of uh, anxiety. I think most physicians are, you know, calm and comfortable. I think patients are are certainly uh, uh, concerned, Uh, and I think certainly we have enough equipment now to handle things, but you're exactly right with the population, you know, 10, 15, you know, depending on how far you want to draw the circle, millions of people, even if a small percent become symptomatic or more critically ill, there are contingency plans not only for the intensive care units, but for surgical areas and step-down units. So I think the governor is right in trying to prepare. The last thing you want to do is do this at the last minute. But at this point, everything seems really quite under control. The issue is, you know, conserving all this equipment. It's ironic that many of these N95 masks are made in Wuhan, China. And so supplies are somewhat limited. Uh, You can't just... um, open the shelf time and time again and expect its supplies to be there. So that's really sort of the rationale to, you know, ration these carefully, not have people come in right. who really are symptomatic. You have to have certain criteria to get tested. Uh, certainly at NYU, you have to have a fever, respiratory symptoms. You know, the worried well, we are trying to reassure. Right. And I think that's what I think the president's team at this point are trying to convey to Americans. What are the signs to look at that say you really need to have a test at this point because we don't have a test for everyone uh, right now. Is there a point, a peak point? I know Dr. Fauci said it's not going to necessarily be a peak, but I think more like a a, a, A hump, a hump. That's what he said. Um, Thanks, Jason. Um, So is there a point where you feel like we could be as a healthcare system in our country definitely taxed that's that's really the fear you know we talked about that s curve or logarithmic curve so you know people shouldn't panic right now there are certainly going to be more and more cases reported fortunately deaths in the united states are still below 100 there are several thousand cases you know worldwide we've seen much more critical situations but again we don't really know what the final number will be, and there will be more and more cases. So this is really a matter of just preparing for a worst-case scenario. That is, so people, streets are deserted. I think people are anxious and businesses are suffering. It's important to sort of pull together and do social distancing, personal hygiene, kind of mutual sacrifice or shared sacrifice, not because anyone is individually in a panic. We don't really know what that final number will be yeah. or how many ICU beds will ultimately ultimately be needed. Hey. You don't want to be in a situation where someone needs an ICU bed and you don't have it. Quick question. You got to be quick for me. 20 seconds. A vaccine. Is that still a 2021 kind of thing? Um, multiple companies are working on it. I think we're going to see it within six to nine months is my guesstimate. So uh, I think we'll see it before 2021. All right. Dr. Ian Lasbader, thank you so much. Um, We really do enjoy talking to you and really appreciate your insight on all of this on an ongoing basis. Dr. Ian Lasbader, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine, NYU Langone Medical Center on the phone in New York City. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. 
All right. What a day. What a Tuesday, Carol Master. And it's only Tuesday, Lemon. It's only Tuesday, (laughs) Lemon. What a week. Uh, Fast and Furious. Let's get back down to Washington quickly to Anna Edgerton, deputy team leader, looking after Congress. She's looking after everything these days because the center of the world is in Washington, at least when it comes to fiscal stimulus. We've heard a lot. Uh, Anna, help us understand what we just heard from the Treasury Secretary. Well, it seems like the price of this package just continues to grow. You know, this morning, Mnuchin had asked lawmakers to put together a package that would be about $850 billion of aid for different industries, cash payments for uh, directly to American adults, and also a payroll tax cut. Now that total is topping $1 trillion. So right now the Senate has a measure that was passed by the House last week that they're going to try to pass quickly and then move on to this other gigantic fiscal stimulus that will try to dull the impact of this coronavirus. How quickly can all this stuff go through? So the Senate could act very quickly on the House bill as long as there's no objections that will force different procedural measures. It depends on really how this package comes together. It seems like all, you know, the the last of the fiscal hawks have put away their concerns about how much this would cost and realize that this is really the time to step in in a big, bold way for the economy. Well, and uh, what's interesting is that Mitch McConnell, uh, I guess a headline crossing, additional bill of much larger scale is needed. I think we're all uh, realizing, certainly when you hear New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio speak about how this is impacting just about everybody, and we hear this from mayors and governors across the country, certainly those in the hardest hit regions. Um, Is politics being put aside, Anna, uh, and Republicans and Democrats um, coming together and understanding about what the mission is here? Increasingly so. I mean, we're still seeing some kind of snarky comments at the sides, you know, Pelosi saying that this needs to be evidence and science-based, suggesting that not everything the administration does is you know, is science-based. But, you know, for the most part, there is an understanding that this is a really unprecedented challenge that lawmakers need to respond to and really need to put the best of the American people first and make sure that they're putting not only the health measures forward, but also the economic measures that is going to dull the impact of this. And I have to say, uh, Secretary Mnuchin has really become the go-to guy for a lot of these negotiations uh, with the Hill. Notable, it feels like. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's kind of two ways for Democrats, especially House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, to engage with the administration. One is you know, the confrontation of, of impeachment and the kind of pushing back on this very unpopular president. The other one is to get down to the nitty gritty with his Treasury Secretary, with Stephen Mnuchin. And we saw this in the debt limit discussion last summer. We're seeing this now. And he really has become an effective negotiator. One challenge that Mnuchin has, though, is that he doesn't have a very deep bench at the Treasury. So he doesn't have have kind of the brain trust that, um, you know, that, that they had responding to the 2008-2009 crisis. He's kind of doing this all by himself. All right. Anna Edgerton, thank you so much. Great update. Uh, a fast-moving story. As you say, we are moving in increments of hundreds of billions of dollars as the day goes on in terms of this uh, fiscal stimulus. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio. Let's move to Andy Brown, editorial director for Bloomberg New Economy, joining us on the phone from New Hampshire. And Andy, I want you to pick up right where Doug was talking about this coordinated effort or lack thereof. We're starting to see some coordination from Europe, but this has not been 
coordinated overall. But first, I got to ask you, you're well, your family's well, how's everybody doing? Hey, thanks, Jason. Yeah, I'm well. I'm in New Hampshire. where some, I have a place in New Hampshire where social distancing um, isn't a temporary expedient. It's almost a way of life. So, <laughs> right. Um, there aren't that many people up here where I am. And so what are you seeing for, you know, from your perch there as you look across the world? You're in the business of the new economy, and it seems like part of the new economy is every man for himself. Yeah, you know, this is the way it panned out. I, I, I mean, you know, the, the, one of the first and biggest casualties of the coronavirus has been global cooperation, international cross-border collaboration. You know, and this is in such stark contrast to what happened back in 2008, where governments all over the world pulled together to prevent a global recession from becoming a global depression. What you're seeing now is piecemeal policy formulated with little or no cross-border consultation and often in the end working at cross-purposes. Yeah, I mean, that's what's fascinating, right? Like, you know, we talk about, I mean, we know this is a, a global crisis uh, and everybody's facing it together. And yet when it comes to dealing with it, um, we're not seeing that kind of coordination. We're watching headlines come out of the EU where, yep, they're figuring out things. Um, it looks like finally together. The U.S. is, you know, charting its own course, um, Andy. And, you know, if ever... We need more global cooperation on this than ever before. Oh, my goodness. I mean, you know, I, 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 I have to tell you that if, if we're going to beat back this coronavirus, if we're going to prevent a you know, global recession from turning into global depression, we have to have, I mean, this is, this is not optional. You have to have global collaboration, and particularly between the U.S. and China. You think about this. What really should be happening right now? between the U.S. and China is that they should be agreeing to accelerate the search for a vaccine against coronavirus. They have the largest pools of scientists and researchers in the world. They are the world's two data giants, you know, and not just and not just the search for a vaccine. Right. I mean, right. for the manufacture and the distribution of all kinds of emergency medical equipment, you know, whether you're talking about face masks or respirators or ventilators, you know, these two countries need to be working right now together uh, to combat this. And what are we seeing with you know, the two? The two of them are basically shooting poison barbs at each, at each other. We heard it today. Well, you know, Donald Trump is tweeting about the Chinese right. virus. Yeah. Right. And and just a few minutes ago, a few hours ago, we hear from the from Beijing that, you know, that they're, they're going to be booting out all the American journalists from the from the New York Times, Washington Post and the and the Wall Street Journal. I mean, the exact opposite of, of pulling together that we need to see from the world's two largest economies. And I have to say, I keep thinking about, because we don't know enough about this particular virus, and that's what we keep hearing um, from the medical experts and the health com community. And what happens if cases start to pick up again, whether it's in a few months or later this year, like there needs to be global tracking of it at this point so that we can make sure countries can get ahead of it and countries can share what seems to be the most effective policies in dealing with it. Well, that's exactly right. And, we're, and, and, and to, to your point, this is what we're seeing, right? So Singapore, Taiwan, Hong Kong, South Korea, 
that really seemed that like they, and they did have the coronavirus under control. And now you're starting to see the numbers ticking up again as infected travelers arrive in these places uh, from Europe, from the United States. So it's, you know, it, it's, it's a global problem. It's going to be with right. us. It's going to be with us, you know, for, 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 for potentially another couple of years. Mm. You know, I mean, it, it, it's, we shouldn't be surprised, okay? I, I mean, this is, this is the product of years of populists coming into power in government, country after country around the world, you know? And, and they, they, they have been at odds with, the, with an international agenda, with globalization. They've torn down international institutions. You take yesterday, we had a meeting of the G7. The G7 agreed that one of the best ways of keeping the global economy going is to maintain open trade. Right. Well, guess what? The Trump administration has just paralyzed the workings of the World Trade Organization, which polices global trade. You know, so you have, you know, and you talk about global collaboration. Donald Trump has, has spent the last four years picking trade battles and other battles with China, with the yeah. European Union and so on. And this is the big difference between now and 2008. 2008, yeah. the U.S. took leadership. Right. You know, very and, different. And, and the U.S. Is, is, I'm afraid, when it comes to uh, all aspects of this problem, really is, you know, is not yeah. in a position anymore to lead. All right. Andy Brown, we're going to leave it there. Always good to catch up with you. Uh, Managing Editor for our Bloomberg New Economy Group joining us on the phone from New Hampshire. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed. It is time for the drive to the close. Back with us is Henley Smith, Senior Relationship Manager at New York-based Stone Castle Cash, uh, Stone Castle Cash Management. Uh, and he joins us on the phone from Connecticut. So, Henley, nice to have you here. First of all, tell us a little bit about your situation. Uh, I'm assuming you're working from home. Tell us a little bit about kind of how your world has changed. Uh, well, yes, working from home. Nice to be with you. I thought I would be studio, but uh, we're here up in lovely Connecticut, uh, doing all our, doing our part to help out, uh, you know, the nation. So yes, we're working from Connecticut. I'm, a, I'm remote usually, but yeah, uh, for the most part, it's, it's been a, it's been an easy switch over. So. And so what are you hearing, Henley? Uh, first of all, glad to hear you're, you're safe and sound doing your part for social distancing. Uh, yeah. I'm doing my part from Sleepy Hollow, not too far from you. Um, yes. What are you hearing in terms of your clients? I mean, this is a worrisome market, to say the least. This sort of volatility. I was talking to uh, an executive earlier today, and she said she was traveling a few weeks ago. She was at a big private equity conference and just got the vibe. She called her uh, money manager and said, we got to go half cash here. Uh, Did you get a lot of those calls over the past couple months? Well, you know that's our expertise as cash I management. Know. Something we've talked about for for a while, and uh, you know this is uh, you know again when uh, we're there for our clients. I think you know again cash is something that you just don't go to cash and you're safe. There's a lot of nuances to it. Um, the, the product that we offer is you know fully insured to the FDIC. 
the, the questions that we're getting primarily are from uh, institutional clients that use prime money market funds, mm-hmm. uh, where there might be some commercial paper exposure. Uh, there might be some foreign bank exposure. Uh, we're getting calls from uh, those that actually use Treasury and government money market funds as well. We saw a lot of off-the-run Treasuries. The bid-ask spread widened out the last couple of days, which is an expression of illiquidity to a certain degree. And, of course, uh, something that started back in September, as we all know, when the repo markets kind of went wacky, uh, again, there are people that have exposure and counterparty risk as well. So uh, I, I have clients that have a full complement of money market and cash vehicles, and it seems to me they're they're taking that back down even more to make sure that there's no counterparty risk or no credit risk. And of course, they want to make sure they have liquidity. And that would mean, uh, you know, having not as much term or longer maturities, they want to make sure that they're overnight or or a couple of days maturity and that's it. So they're really pulling back pretty hard. So, okay. I mean, how do you quantify, qualify this? I mean, in terms of someone who has seen other shocks to the financial markets, and this is obviously, we keep saying it's not a financial market crisis, but it's a health crisis that's creating certainly a lot of stress and strain in the financial markets. So does this remind you of another time? I know we keep think, talking about either 9-11 or we keep talking about certainly, um, you know, the financial crisis. How does it remind you? Yeah, I mean, I, what does again, it remind I, you of? Yeah. We're dealing with the unknown. We're dealing with the uncertainty that creates market agita, if you will. I mean, it, it would immediately go back 12 years ago to the 08. Um, again, it's different there. There we were dealing uh, with derivative on derivative on derivative that no one could get any price discovery on and couldn't really quantify the risk. Here again, I think where we've been since that point where, you know, stress testing with the banks, uh, you know, the vocal rule, all those things that we put in place, I think are working very nicely now. So this isn't a banking crisis. This is, uh, you know, where... We, it, as we've talked about, it, it is a health crisis. It's mm-hmm. something that'll pass. Um, it, you know, I think but, the but, Federal you know, Reserve and the Treasury are doing what they should be doing. But if I can, Henley, but at what at what damage will this pass? I do wonder. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a concern. Obviously, um, I don't think again. When I was thinking about it just a, a couple of days ago, again, it wasn't like there's valuations going into a black hole of nothing, which is what 2008 felt like. Here again, it, you know deferred wages, something that we can make up. Yeah, there's going to be some real uh, uh, pain involved, but it's something that I think that we'll all come back from in terms of, again, we'll get those wages back, we'll get those revenues back. And I think that's, to me, we, I can feel real confident in that. And I think the government is doing what it should be doing to backstop people so the pain isn't as much as we've worked through this period. Well, let me ask you about that just in the minute or so we have left, Henley, which is we have seen especially the Fed uh, be incredibly uh, active over the past 48 hours, really, as we think back across it. Uh, the initial monetary uh, cut or the uh, the rate cut that we saw Sunday night, that emergency cut, uh, didn't thrill people. Some of the fiscal stimulus has come in from other parts of the government, but also some of the Fed action has made people feel better. What was the right thing that they did uh, in your read? Well, again, I'm looking at the markets right now, and as you probably see, the 10-year Treasury is back over 1%. Yeah, that's a big deal. a lot deal. of comfort right now. I mean, if, if I think if the crisis was still unfolding, which it is medically, but if it was still unfolding financially, and again, 
we're going to be probably dealing with this the fallout for the next couple of months. But if that was the case, you would see that Treasury, uh, that 10-year Treasury, probably mm. where it was a couple of weeks ago, low, you know, beyond, uh, below half a percent. That's back over 1%. It seems like it's moving in the right direction. That gives me comfort. Also, again, uh, you know, the, the Treasury yield curve is very positive right now. It's not negative. So right. that gives me comfort as well that, you know, things are starting to find the right level. You know, of course, everything went wacky. We, we tried to find exactly where we were at. We're still dealing with that. But I think financially we're starting to, starting to get our legs again. All right. Henley Smith, we're going to leave it there. Really appreciate you, Senior Relationship Manager at Stone Castle Cash Management, joining us on the phone from Connecticut. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.